1: Hello, I'm Neil Govier, Director of CPD at the CFA Institute. Uh, Today, I'm in Mumbai at the ninth annual conference of the Indian Investment Conference. And it's my great pleasure to be talking this this morning to Matt Gerdkin. Matt is the Vice President of Geopolitical Strategy at BCA Research. Matt, it's great to have you again with us.
0: Very glad to be here.
1: Thank you, Matt. Um, I was listening to your talk uh, this morning and uh, I'm going to try and pick out some things. So this is a fairly complex question. It comes in three parts. OK. Um, it's to do with the US-China trade war. So first of all, could you give some insight into the domestic pressures that China faces, which is sort of going to influence how they approach things? Then a similar thing for the US, you know, the domestic pressures that Trump might be under and how those come together and what you think maybe the outcome could be. So the domestic pressures Mm -hmm. and then maybe what we might see actually developing.
0: The domestic pressures on China stem from the fact that China has has been an export-oriented manufacturing economy and has benefited from globalization more than any other country in the world. Furthermore, China's strategy has been to not confront the U.S. directly But to try to build power over time and gradually and increase its sphere of influence in the region without attracting direct hostility from the US. Those things have come in, in, they've begun to change and so China's under pressure because the result of that change has been that there's increasing uh, pessimism and bearishness among uh, investors and, and even concern among consumers in China, particularly in the private sector as a result of the trade war a fear that U.S. pressure is going to be negative for the economy, a fear that with 30% of the country employed in manufacturing, that big changes that are already underway will get exacerbated by a trade war. So that issue in and of itself will, will put pressure economically on Xi Jinping, who does not have a lot of political constraints, but can be affected by economic ones.
1: So uh, the domestic pressures would mean that he's got to give in somehow to what Trump is asking?
0: And what we're what we're seeing is that he is moving toward offering concessions right. and he cannot be seen as kowtowing entirely to the foreign imperialists, if you will, <laughs> Indeed. Um, but he is making some compromises to try to prevent this direct confrontation and to try to prevent a destabilizing transition in the manufacturing sector.
1: Okay, so what about Trump and... Uh, Obviously, he suffered in the, the elections at the end of last year, so he'll have his eye on re-election. How has he got to play his domestic demands against what he's trying to extract from China?
0: Trump does have a long-term desire to put pressure on China and trade the, change the trade relationship. Uh, but he is compromising that long-term preference because he's being forced to by the risk that the sell-off in, in equities could develop into a bear market, which tends to then correlate with a recession. Presidents lose re-election if there's a recession. So he's having to negotiate and uh, compromise a little bit. And we've also seen that with Iran, where he initially wanted to put maximum pressure on Iran, but instead had to not uh, really enforce the sanctions fully. And that way he's produced a little bit less pressure on the oil price and less pressure on the economy that way. So Trump is making adjustments. He's also pivoting to deal with the southern border, which means that he doesn't want to have uh, the markets scared by government shutdown and trade conflict with China. But over the long run, I would expect Trump either right ahead of the 2020 election or if he's reelected uh, to put a lot of pressure on China again. And that's why I think any deal that we get this year will be limited in scope.
1: So you just mentioned the 2020 election. So do you think the, this sort of trade conflict or trade war, whatever you want to call it, will rumble along that long?
0: Absolutely. This is a long term trend of U.S.-China conflict and competition. So I don't think trade tariffs, uh, now that the option has been introduced, will ever really go away in the case of U.S. and China. Uh, I I think trade wars, other trade wars, uh, are much more likely to be put away uh, because the U.S. public is not as unhappy with other countries as it is with China. Uh, And the U.S. president can then draw from that, uh, that perception that China has been unfair in trade practices. Uh, furthermore, uh, the U.S. Uh, strategic uh, strategy, the grand strategy, would would urge the United States to to focus on China more, maybe even to try to contain China. And that's being driven by perceptions in the in the deep state, in the intelligence community, that China is a revisionist power and is threatening U.S. Uh, preponderance.
1: So they're both being driven by maybe different domestic uh, pressures. But a simple question, I'm sure there's no simple answer. In the long run, do you see that one of them would emerge as the winner? You know, both politicians will say they've won. We know that. But do you think economically one does have a stronger hand to play and the other one will have to give the greater concessions? Does it work like that?
0: Yeah, trade wars are are negative. Trade wars will hurt all sides because trade helps create wealth and there's more wealth than to go around. If you reduce the trade, then there's less of it to go around. But in a relative basis, the U.S. is in a better position. Uh, the United States, first of all, the uh, workers in the U.S. experience unemployment. Every time the business cycle ends, uh, layoffs occur, and U.S. workers are forced to adjust. Uh, China has suppressed unemployment for many years, and Chinese workers are, are really not uh, accustomed to large-scale layoffs. And furthermore, the political system is not accustomed to dealing with large-scale layoffs. And a much larger share of China's population is employed in manufacturing than in the U.S. The U.S. is actually quite insulated with regard to global trade. So from that perspective, with a more flexible political system and a more flexible, uh, more free market economic system, the U.S. can stomach this kind of conflict, particularly because it's insulated. Um, China will will have to face this transition away from, uh, from exports and investment into consumption much more rapidly than the leaders had been planning.
1: All right. Well, it's a long term game. We'll see how it plays out. So thank you for your insight there. Um, obviously, we're in India and I'm sure many people have been coming up to you and saying, uh, there's an election coming up. Uh, what do you think the impact might be on India? Um, not only domestically, but India's place maybe you know, in the global trade. Um, so what are your thoughts on India?
0: Well, India, India benefited from a period of uh, a, a real swell of enthusiasm uh, around the 2014 election when Modi came to power and the BJP had a, a single party, a large majority in the lower house. And furthermore, continuing to win state elections resulted in the BJP and its alliances controlling about 20 out of 29 states in India. Now, that was the high tide of, of Modi. And, um, and the high tide of his movement. Now we're seeing some state elections that were important went away from that direction. And we're also seeing that he's most likely to lose seats even if he retains control of the lower house. And the polls are of course quite tight. He could even lose control. Because when you do structural reforms, you impose a little pain economically on the country. And that means that you lose some political support. And that's what's occurred for Modi and the BJP. And also we're seeing some trends that were, as I said, at high tide, <laughs> yeah. naturally recede simply for cyclical reasons. Uh, so in that regard, you will have a, a shift in the political dynamic and an increase in policy uncertainty. But India will still ultimately benefit from the reforms that have been done.
1: And I, I think I've heard you say that you think that Indian equities might be overvalued at the moment?
0: At the moment, yes. On a... On a... Tactical and cyclical horizon, we're a little concerned. Uh, Overvalued, but also that trends can work against India. As I said, rising policy uncertainty, a a little bit more inflation. Uh, You've had the central banker removed yet again, which will unhinge some expectations there in terms of governance. Uh, And then you've also got the factor that oil prices should be rising, which tends to send Indian equities down relative to emerging market equities. Uh, But then, again, beyond that 12-month horizon, on a longer term basis, we would be very much structurally overweight India as an emerging market.
1: Okay. Um, Let's move. Um, I come from the UK and we can't uh, (laughs) have a conversation without touching on Brexit. Mm. Um, What's our choice? It's hard and crash out. It's uh, go with May's current deal, which I think will be voted on next week. Mm -hmm. Or it's uh, maybe go back to the people and ask them again what they think. Now there's more information. Mm. Do you have a view on which of those outcomes is most likely? And following that, is it going to be bad either way for the UK, you know, economically?
0: We tend to think that the crash Brexit scenario uh, where the UK goes tumbling out of the EU and there's no precautions, there's no adjustment to trade or regulations, and we go back to just basic World Trade Organization uh, rules between the EU and the UK, We see that as pretty unlikely. And the reason is, first of all, because Parliament does not want that. Parliament never wanted to leave in the first place. And then meanwhile, the people have kind of been changing their position as well, at least insofar as the polling is accurate. And we think it generally has been accurate in the UK. So there's been a clear trend among the public of remorse, if you will. And uh, as the public shifts in that direction, you have an alignment both of parliament and the people being less confident about this decision. That doesn't mean Brexit won't happen per se, but it certainly discourages a hard Brexit. Uh, Then the question becomes, uh, is May able to deliver? Is she able to get the votes? And if not, then do we go into a scenario where eventually you have a new election and maybe a second referendum? I don't think second referendum is a panacea. I think it uh, it will... we'll see some revival of the Brexit, the pro-Brexit side, yes, yeah. if their vote is taken away from them, if you will. Uh, and then also it does raise the obvious quest- question, which is that if you and I play rock, scissors, paper, <laughs> and you win once and I win once, you've yeah, got to do a third a round. Right. So it's not an easy solution. Uh, but my sense is that a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit is where, we're, where our end game is. And uh, for that matter, uh, the important question for investors is how much, how long of a time horizon do they have? Because there is a discount in the pound now if you're willing to ride out the uncertainties and the, and the pressure that can come on the pound in the short term.
1: So, you know, you take um, a data-driven approach to the analysis that you do. Uh, so not so distorted by emotions, and it's a very emotional topic. Uh, a soft exit, can Britain be better? You know, sort of just overall, whatever happens, going for soft, is the UK economy going to suffer? To some extent.
0: We do think that potential GDP will decline because the motivating factor, aside from sovereignty, was immigration. So assuming that the U.K., like the U.S., that the public has has become really activated on this issue and that that's not going to change, you'll be marginally tightening immigration in some way or another. And that will reduce uh, labor force growth. And furthermore, the U.K. had a great advantage trading in services. And it, it will be hard to expand the services trade advantages in a Brexit scenario, whether it's soft or hard, compared to a scenario where you haven't left it to use. <laughs> yes, so yeah. in both of those Could cases, it probably work. will weigh on, on the potential for the UK economy. Okay.
1: Uh, I think we have about one minute left. So I don't know if it's fair to say. Uh, give this one minute. Russia seems very quiet at the moment. Hmm. Um, Do you have a a quick thought on maybe what's Russia up to or Mm -hmm. uh, would you invest in Russia or how you see Hmm. it playing out?
0: Well, we are overweight uh, Russia within emerging markets because they've had very orthodox monetary and fiscal policy. And we don't expect them to go on big new foreign policy adventures of the nature of Georgia and Ukraine, okay. because it gets harder for them to single out countries and attack them <laughs> when those countries are out members of NATO. Yes. Uh, so there are some limitations there. Uh, also, because we expect the oil price to recover, that should help Russia deal with the unpopularity of the government in being able to try to provide a little bit more support among the people uh, with, with revenues. Um, the problem is that the United States and Russia are really incapable of normalizing relations. And so that sanctions continue to emerge. And Russia and China are cooperating a lot more extensively, such that the U.S. has identified both as rivals and great power contenders. And the conflict with China can't really be separated <laughs> from the conflict right. with Russia as much anymore. So I think that will continue to prevent us uh, from recognizing with a high conviction, recommending with a high conviction uh, Russia even though on a structural basis, we're overweight for those investors that feel that they can can ride out the storm.
1: Okay, well, our time's up, I'm afraid, but as ever, fascinating talking to you, Matt, and thank you ever so much.
0: Thank you very much. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.